0: The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. I have some framed diplomas sitting in front of my desk on the wall as I write my sermons every week. And when I'm having sermon block, which happens regularly, I'm staring straight ahead at two of these diplomas which have a word on them, which to me is a head-scratcher. The word is master. Master of arts in clinical psychology. And the second, which definitely makes me blush and laugh at the contradiction of terms, master of divinity. In the trades, the word master is also used, right, Tom? You work your way up from apprentice to journeyman to master electrician or master plumber or master carpenter. And by definition, master, what's being communicated on those pieces of paper in the trades is this. It's referring to a person who has a grasp on something or someone. And in this case, it's a field of study or a practice. But there is an irony in the term master of divinity. And here's the irony. Because I think master of divinity is a summary of all our broken sinful selves, isn't it? We believe we have the ability to be masters of God. It was the lie given to Adam and Eve in the garden. You will be like God, knowing what's good and what's evil. We become masters to say who we believe God is and what we believe is good and evil. For example, we say God is love, which means he doesn't punish sin, or he doesn't hold responsible those who do wicked things. No, God is love. Or we say God is a Republican, meaning he couldn't do his work through any other party's agenda. We say in various ways we are the masters of divinity. We can also believe we're the masters of divinity not only in what we say, but also in what we do as we start to act like God. We become masters at playing favorites. Deciding who is in and out of our favor and God's favor and treat people according to who we think deserves God's love. We also become masters of deception. We put on an outward appearance of loving, worship, obedience, holiness. But behind closed doors, we really reveal who we love, ourselves. We become masters of justification. Believing what we do is better than the person we condemn. Even when we're guilty of the exact same thing we're condemning. Unbelief is the condition of being a master or expert of divinity, of believing that we know best, that we know God, that we are God of God. And as a master, we would be able to recognize God himself if he were to walk in this room. Or would we? Would we recognize him if he walked in this room? Jesus, the master carpenter, the builder of God's kingdom, enters a synagogue filled with people who have their masters of divinity. And Jesus, the master carpenter, is met with rejection. For the readers of Mark, who are hearing this gospel and are undergoing suffering, rejection, and hardship for their faith in Jesus, this verse is a comfort. To see that rejection is part of the plan. And rejection should amaze us. Because it becomes the avenue by which the kingdom of God is built. So far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has shown us that he's a master over many things, right? He's a master over the law of God and the Sabbath. He's a master over unclean demons. He's a master over disease. He's a master over storms. But in this passage, as Jesus makes his homecoming, stepping foot back into Nazareth, his hometown, he becomes the master builder over unbelief. Showing them who God is in the face of their rejection. Because everything Jesus The master carpenter says and does reveal who God is. Jesus is the only master of divinity. And we have a decision as we hear these words. Will we accept his words and his work to be master over us? A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word, and it is true. Everything Jesus, the master carpenter, says and does reveals who God is. He's the master of divinity. And he's calling us, will you accept my words and my work to be master of you? Today, we're going to look specifically at two aspects of the master carpenter's work in building God's kingdom. First, what does he say that prompts rejection? And second, what does he do in the face of rejection? Because Jesus is all about saying something and doing something, promises and product. He talks about a master plan and then he builds the master building. So, first, what does the master say which prompts rejection? In verses 1 to 6, we see him saying this I am God in human skin. I am God in human skin. Jesus steps into his hometown synagogue, his home church, and opens up God's word and begins teaching. And so far in Mark, what has Jesus' teaching consisted of? He's announcing the kingdom of God, that it's here, that you need to repent. But what does he say or do specifically at his hometown synagogue that ruffles so many feathers? Mark doesn't go into specifics. It just says he's teaching. But thankfully, Luke does. Jesus opens the scroll and reads the passage from Isaiah 61, the passage that Cody read today. He opens the scroll and Jesus reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor Well, it's one thing to read this from Isaiah. It's another thing to announce what Jesus did next. He said to the people as he sat down after reading that passage, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What has Jesus just said by saying it is fulfilled right now? He's saying, the child that you babysat, The child that you changed his poopy diapers. The kid who you played capture the flag with. The guy who sat in shop class next to you is God among you. (laughs) And the verse right prior to Isaiah 61 is this I am the Lord. In its time, I will make it happen. The problem that people have in Nazareth with the words that Jesus says is not that God can't do what he said in Isaiah. The problem is that they believe that God himself cannot be standing in front of them in a human body. God is too mighty to be contained in a man. Look at the questions they ask as they're confounded by Jesus' announcement that says, I am fulfilling the scripture. Look at these questions. Look at the contrast. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Their questions are not awe-inspiring questions. They are signs of unbelief, of their masters of divinity. The guy who fixed my rocking chair is completely off his rocker. We have to at least give them the benefit of the doubt, right? In their framework of scripture, God is too mighty and too awesome to be contained in human skin, particularly in this kind of skin. He's a tradesman's son. He's a son of Mary, which would be a derogatory term to use a mother's name, and it actually maybe hints at a little bit of scandal going on with Mary. He's a human brother to all these other brothers and sisters, It's not possible for a God so great to be from a place and a family so small. The last chapter of Mark, Mark 5, was filled with three different instances of people being amazed by what Jesus does. But notice this one in verse 6. Who's amazed? Jesus is now the one filled with amazement that they cannot believe this to be possible. And it also says that Jesus was not able to do mighty works here. What does that mean? The kingdom Jesus, the master builder, was building didn't give him a building permit in Nazareth. They refused to hear what he had to say. Because what he was saying was that the master was more human than they could grasp. God cannot be that human And so Jesus says, I can't do my work here in the midst of this unbelief. Take comfort in Jesus' humanity that he has got to be so sad and so disappointed that the people he knew best, that the people he loved the longest, actually knew God the least. A God who takes residence among his people. My sister lives in Omaha, Nebraska. And if you know Omaha, Nebraska, it's the hometown of Warren Buffett. You know who Warren Buffett is? Warren Buffett is the fourth richest man in the world. Okay, I think his net worth is above $87 billion. And when I visited Omaha for the first time, my sister was giving me a tour and she said, let's go ahead and swing by Warren Buffett's place. I want to show you where he lives. And I was thinking, oh, what is the house of the one of the wealthiest man men in the world look like? Could we even be able to see it or do we have to like get binoculars from a distance because it's compounded with big walls and gates and it's way off in the distance? I was waiting to see something incredible and impressive with Warren Buffett's house. We drove just about a mile and a half from my sister's humble place and she pointed there it is. And standing before me was not a massive compound of concrete surrounded by this architectural feat of a house. Buffett's home was a modest five-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath place around the same size as my house. His home value is 0.001% of his net worth. I didn't expect a person with the size of Buffett's pocketbook to dwell in a home the same size as me. Accepting Jesus' word that he is God and that God is dwelling in skin means we have to throw out our own masters of divinity and allow God instead to say who he is. And what is he saying by dwelling in skin? He's saying, I'm a servant of man who did not consider equality with God a thing to be mastered or grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself, even the rejection of man through death on a cross. Everything the master carpenter says and does reveals who God is. He is the master of divinity. Will you accept his words and his work to be master of you? What are we being asked to accept in these verses, in his mastery over us? You need to accept his word when you are rejected because of him. Some are going to look at you and say, You? You call yourself God's child? How could God dwell in you? Who do you think you are? Hear Jesus' word to us, which says, I'm with you always. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Secondly, we need to accept his word when we're confronted with our own track record. Just as the people of Nazareth had a human picture of Jesus that could not have God a part of it, there are parts of our story which we believe God cannot have a part of. We need to accept his word, which says that your life is not based on your track record. Accept his word, which says your life is based on his perfect track record. Thirdly, we need to accept his word when we're called to go to places where we might be humiliated. Let his word comfort you. That a God who is infinitely more valuable than Warren Buffett made himself nothing. Took on the very nature of a servant and humbled himself. Accept the humiliation of humans knowing you have the mind of Christ in you. And finally, fourthly, you need to accept his work even when you're seeing little fruit in your lives. Some of us might be struggling right now. We have relatives that no matter how much we pour the gospel into them with our word and with our lives, they're refusing to believe God to be true. We need to remember that James, one of Jesus' brothers, became a leader, a centerpiece in the church only after Jesus was killed. Be patient to know that the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, will eventually yield big results. But leave the results to the master builder who will keep building his kingdom even after you're dead. The master builder, the master of divinity, not only says who God is, he does what God is. What does he do specifically when he's rejected by men? Let's look at verses 7 to 13. Does he get louder? Does he start to puff himself up? Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. No. The master gets lower and hands us the tools. (laughs) What do we do when we're rejected, friends, by those we love? We go one of two directions. We get bitter and resentful. And there's a storm within us, or we become angry and rageful and we lash out at those who hurt us. We puff up. But what does the master do? Does he say, no more of you? I'm done with you, ungrateful, unbelieving people. No, no more. No. He gets lower and he gets more discreet. After he's rejected, he hands the tools and he hands the authority to his disciples. Go into more towns, go into more of the relatives' places, go into more households, the Israelites' households. He gives them authority and power to do things they couldn't do on their own. He gives them power to display casting out demons and healing the sick. Why? Because these men, these unconventional, unimpressive disciples with nothing but a walking stick and the clothes on their back, proclaim this is the way. God meets us in humility. These are not mighty men. These are humble tradesmen, fishermen, tax collectors, tradesmen. And they too will be accepted or rejected by the message they bring as they bring it with their calloused skin. What a picture of the church this is. People who are unimpressive. (laughs) bringing an all-impressive God to bear on the world. Jesus doesn't get louder. Instead, he bends lower, gets smaller, and hands his power to ordinary men and women to declare who God is. Accept this is the way, or reject it. But to reject it is to reject God's ways and God himself. He asks the disciples to depend upon his power. He takes away their security blankets of food and clothing. No bags, women, are packed for this trip. And they're being asked to trust that the work they're called to do is a work that he has already prepared for them to do. And the last thing he instructs them, he says, don't leave a place that welcomed you. Why? Because I'm guessing the places that are welcoming them trailer park kind of places. And they might want a better option or an upgrade to their lodging. Might be a prostitute. Might be another tax collector that's welcoming them in. He's reminding the disciples, this is where you'll find me. In the down low. In the humblest of dwellings. Because those who receive you are going to be the humble the broken, the sinners. Henry Nowen, I know, Barbara, Henri, if I said it in French, Henri. Henry Nouwen was a renowned and respected man of words. He was a professor at Notre Dame, at Harvard, and at Yale. Wow, impressive. But in the last 10 years of his ministry, Nouwen would say what he was most impacted by was getting low he left his impressive post at Harvard and became a pastor to the residents of L'Arche, which was a community for physically and cognitively disabled men and women. He writes, "'I moved from the best and the brightest, wanting to rule the world, to men and women who had few or no words and were considered at best marginal to the needs of our society.'" He recounts a story in which he illustrated the master getting low. In this community that he lived, no one did things alone. You couldn't do anything alone. You had to go with a partner, two by two. And he was on his way to a speaking engagement in Washington, D.C., and he was paired with Bill, who was a resident of the community. And on the plane, Bill excitedly kept saying to Henry, We're doing this together, aren't we? We're doing this together. And Henry was so nervous as to what that would mean. What's Bill going to do? Is he going to hijack my speech? Is he going to embarrass me? And he writes, After I was introduced in this huge ballroom full of influential people, I didn't know what doing this together with Bill would mean. I picked up my speech and I began to speak. And at that very moment, I saw Bill leave his seat and walk up to the podium and planted himself right behind me. And he started taking my pages as I was finished with them. It was a gentle, loving reminder That his presence was there to support me. But Bill had more in mind. When I began to speak eloquently about the temptation we all have to be impressive. Bill interrupted me and said loudly. I've heard that before. It was a gentle reminder that my thoughts were not as new as I wanted my audience to think they were. And when I came to the next part and read the words, the question most asked by handicapped people with whom I live is, Are you going to be home tonight? And Bill interrupted me again and said, That's right. That's what John Smelter always asks. Bill just wanted people to know about his friend. After I finished reading my speech and people had shown their appreciation, Bill said to me, Henry, Henry, can I say something now? My first reaction was, oh, how am I going to handle this? He might ramble. He might embarrass me. But then I caught myself in my assumption that Bill had nothing important to say. So I asked everyone in the audience, please sit down. Bill would like to say a few words. And Bill took the microphone and said, with all the difficulties he had in speaking. Last time when Henry went to Boston, he took John Smelcher with him. This time he wanted me to come with him to Washington, and I'm very glad to be with you tonight. Thank you very much. Now in rights, Bill, as we were getting on the plane, said to me, we did it together, didn't we? Then I realized the full truth of Jesus's words, where two or more meet in my name, I am among them. What would be remembered was not my speech, but that Bill and I were doing it together, two by two. We are Bill Church. We get to do Jesus's work of building a kingdom with him. He gets out of the way and lets his love be displayed in us as we bring his authority to bear on the least of these. Jesus was rejected by men and the carpenter himself didn't do nailing but was nailed himself to the cross. He took the rejection of God on himself and gave us the acceptance of God through his skin. And we are commissioned to continue in his master-building project, to bend low, to humble ourselves, to be rejected by men so that he could raise us up with him. What are we then being called to accept real quickly? Friends, accept his work. Accept his work when you feel powerless. The authority granted to the disciples was not their own, and it's not yours either. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Accept that. Accept his work when you can't understand how to get it done. Nothing is impossible with God, and God moves in mysterious ways that you might not ever fully understand. Accept his work when you're welcomed. The work that says, this is my Father's doing, not your own. They welcome you because they're welcoming Jesus. And accept his work even when you're refused. If Christ was despised and rejected by men, and he used that rejection to bring acceptance between the Father and his children, then shake the dust off your feet when someone rejects you and move on to the next home, the next village, the next person, knowing God is at work even in declaring judgment. They are rejecting the Christ who is in you. Christ was a master builder, proclaiming the kingdom of God by what he said and by what he did. And church, Christ now dwells in you. Proclaim who Jesus is by saying, God would even choose to dwell in a little house like me. Proclaim who Jesus is by saying, God is doing a work in this unimpressive person. And I'm depending on the Lord to lead me. I'm taking his tools of authority with me. And I'm remaining present with anyone who would welcome me. The demon-possessed, the sick, the lowly, the bills of this world. Because where two or more are gathered in his name, he is there as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your work. And we pray that it would humble us. And it would cause us to tear up our own masters of divinity and look to the master carpenter of divinity. Build your kingdom through us, the church. Help us to be built to the world, knowing that where two or more are gathered, we're bringing you there as well. We're not qualified, but we've been qualified through the work of your son, Jesus, who embodied flesh, whose flesh was torn, who was rejected by you, Father, so that we could be accepted by you, Father. Do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.